You're listening to a Roddenberry Podcast. The Trek Files, Season 11, Episode 7, Blood and Fire, Story by David Gerald, January 19th, 1987. Welcome to The Trek Files, a look into the archives of Roddenberry Entertainment from the personal files of Gene Roddenberry. And now your host, Dr. Trek, Larry Nemechek. Well, welcome back, Star Trek fans. Hey, all of you Star Trek historians, you, <laughs> or history fans anyway. Hey, the tech heads, the canonises, I say that lovingly. Yes, all of you Trekophile spell with an F. I'm so glad you could join us again. Uh, we've got another great show for you, another great guest. And a little chapter of Star Trek history that seems to be a bit, you know, on the controversial side, but people don't really know what's at the core of it in many ways. So we're going to dive into that. So the place to start, we have the document right there at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash the Trek Files. As always, that's a great place to start because this is a rare one. You have not seen this one before. You want to take it back to 1987. It's The Roots. It's the brainstorming early days of the next generation. And, uh, well, take a look, take a listen here, and then I'll be right back with this week's guest. Picard is now faced with a puzzling dilemma. So deadly are the bloodworms, Starfleet orders call for the immediate destruction of any vessel so infected. But if Picard does that, he will also be wiping out several of his most valuable officers. Also complicating Picard's decision is the fact that there is a scientist aboard the Copernicus who was part of the mission studying the bloodworms, and Number One's away team had discovered evidence that this scientist may have developed an answer to the menace. But if Picard takes the chance of looking into this, he may be risking the infestation of his own vessel too. Star Trek fans, <laughs> you Trekophiles, we've just lived through a pandemic all about virality and uh, infection. And well, that's an intriguing premise. And yes, I know Star Trek has its uh, pandemic shows and its disease shows, but this was really well, there's a lot going on here. Um, and who better to talk about this simple beginning to the saga of, yes, Blood and Fire was the author, one-time staffer on The Next Generation at the, in the early days. And uh, again, as I say, far more than just the triples. David Gerald, I am so thrilled to have you back with us on The Trek Files again. Thanks for joining us. Well, thank you for inviting me back. After last time, I didn't expect it. <laughs> <laughs> no, what are you kidding? Yeah. All right. Anyway. No, I. This is this is a corner of history, and it's had several iterations. You've even uh, resurrected it uh, as a fan film. But tell us what the big picture story here is: a blood and fire. It started very early because uh, we got the word that Trek was coming back on October 10th. Gene hired me on October 20th, a week later, and um, uh, for the at the beginning, we didn't even have offices. We were me, Bob Justman, Gene and Eddie Milkis, and I think that's pretty much it. We'd meet for lunch every day, and we'd talk about possibilities. We'd look at uh, the other films that had been made to see what other people had done. Uh, we looked at Aliens. Uh, forget what else. I think we may have looked at Forbidden Planet. We looked at a lot of stuff. 
And so we would watch a film and then we'd have lunch in the commissary and then we would, um, uh, and everybody knew it was like, you know, Paramount was going to put something like $40 million into this new series. And, um, and it was going straight to syndication. So we weren't going to have to deal with network executives who were going to say, nah, nah, you can't do that. <laughs> so, uh, so we're very optimistic and enthusiastic. And Gene and I had previously, even before this announcement, been invited to a convention in Boston, a Star Trek convention. Well, when they knew is that they had like 3,000, 5,000 people there. And of course, everybody was asking, tell us about the new series. And Gene said, well, I can't tell you anything because we don't even have a, we don't know who the characters are. We don't know uh, where we're going to be shooting, what we're going to be shooting. We have no scripts. We have no, we don't have a staff yet. We don't even have offices. And he said, but he would acknowledge people's enthusiasm. There's a fan named Franklin Hummel who um, stood up mm -hmm. and asked, will there be gay characters, aboard, gay crewmen? He said, it's time. You had the, the, the black, you had the Asian, you had the this. It's time to acknowledge the gay people are part of the future too. And Gene said, yes. And I'm sitting on the side making those gay characters. Okay. Didn't think anything of it at the time because... You know, you say a lot in front of an audience that never happens. And then a few weeks later, we were in a staff meeting. And by then it was Bob Justman and me and Eddie Milkus and uh, uh, a couple other people. And I don't, and, and I don't remember who. And Bob Justman, uh, Gene said, then we got to include a gay crew member. And, and Bob Justman said, what, you're going to have Lieutenant Tutti Fruity? Now, Bob was a good guy. But, you know, remember, is it, he grew up in a different time. And he made that as a joke. Um, and Gene balled him out right then and there and said, no, we're going to respect everybody. We're going to include everybody. I think Rick Berman was in the room too. And, and he says, oh, and it's time. And I, he says, I promised the audience. Now, remember, this was like 1986, and we were in the middle of the AIDS epidemic. Now, Robert A. Heinlein had... Um, uh, brain surgery and seven people with rare blood types, according to uh, Heinlein, had saved his life by donating blood. Mm -hmm. Legendary sci-fi author, Robert Heinlein. Yes. Yeah, so he was doing blood drives at all the major conventions. You want a Heinlein autograph, you got to donate a pint of blood or be turned away, you know, to make the offer. Well, anyway, so he would raise thousands and thousands of gallons of blood for the, uh, but what we were discovered with the AIDS crisis was that people were even afraid to donate blood and there mm -hmm. was a critical shortage. So this was all churning in my head. And after we finally got uh, our characters decided and our uh, production Bible written and all of the details, and I said, Gene, it's time for me. And I had written the production Bible for Gene. So I knew the show better than anybody at that point. I said, Gene, I want to do a script and uh, I want to do, and he said, okay, you have a deal. And I submitted a story called Blood and Fire, which was about blood donorship. And I hadn't even thought about the gay characters until we went to script. I was going to say, there's nothing, famously, there's nothing in here. The thing that supposedly sunk the show in the long run, supposedly, is not in these original three paragraphs. So no, was, it's I not. I wanted to talk about that. Yeah. And, and so, but I was writing the script and I realized, oh, wait a minute, this will work and put the gay characters in. And basically, here's how you know they're gay. Uh, uh, Riker turns to, I think, Freeman and says, how long have you two been together? And he says, since the Academy. And Riker says, that's cool. And that was it. 
Now, if you were 12 years old, you'd think they were best friends. If you were 13 years old, you'd go, oh, wow. Right? And that was it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I turned in the script and I left to go on a Star Trek cruise, which was a very weird thing. Um, <laughs> I don't think I was there, but I don't think anybody knew I was on the cruise. But we went on the cruise. We had a good time. We came back. And there's a message on my machine from Dorothy Fontana. Don't do anything till I talk to you. Now, oh, while I was on the cruise, I got a, a telegram from Gene. Everybody loves your script. So I was, oh, good. All right. And, um, and I got back and Dorothy said, don't do anything till I talk to you. Well, it turned out that there had been a flurry of memos from, uh, and the worst was from Rick Berman, which I, I, he totally shot the script down by saying, we can't shoot this. Mommies will write letters. We're going to be on at four in the afternoon and we can't afford to offend anybody. And the whole point of Star Trek was always to stretch the imagination. Right. And, you know, it, it, we had the black woman on the bridge and there were stations in Alabama that wouldn't show this, uh, that complained. They didn't want to show that. And we had an Asian guy on the, on the helm and we had other people of other ethnicities show up throughout the, the original series. And we were already planning, we're going to have a disabled guy, and we're going to have a this, we're going to have a that. And Rick Berman is writing them, well, it turns out, and, and this is hearsay because I did not hear it direct, but I heard it from three different people, that Rick Berman once said, we will never have gay characters on this show, ever. So that he had, and, and so uh, he wasn't the only one who had, took offense to it, but eventually after it went through, three rewrites where we took out the gay characters and gave the lines to Tasha Yar, and we did this and that and the other. Um, Bob Justman finally wrote a memo and said, let's go back to David's original script. That's the one that had balls. You know, he just wrote this, <laughs> and, and Dorothy Fontana balled him out and says, why didn't you say that when it would have worked, when, when it would have made a difference? Um, the joke is that a couple months ago, I realized there was a way to save that script immediately. If I had, instead of lovers, I had made them clone brothers. You know, same actor playing or <laughs> twins. But since they're clone brothers, okay. But the whole reason for doing the episode, what I really wanted to do was because uh, we had to have, we ran out of artificial blood we, and we couldn't synthesize it. We had to, in time, so we had to have people donate blood to save the lives of the people who are coming back from the Copernicus. And I figured that we would put a card up at the end of the thing. You too can donate mm -hmm. blood with all your local Red Cross. And I figured that if we got even 100,000 uh, pints of blood donated within the following week, it would demonstrate how powerful Star Trek had become in our culture, this iconic thing that was now saving lives and making a difference. And I had put that in my memos, that this was the reason for doing this script. And I was so wanted to do the, the blood donorship drive and be, because it was my way of, mm -hmm. um, of, of thanking Robert A. Heinlein and acknowledging the effort that so many people had made. And, uh, um, and it got scuttled because of, uh, partly because of Rick Berman and partly because of Gene's despicable, vile, walking elbow wrinkle of a lawyer who I would, believe me, you could hold a gun to my head and the, I could not think of a single nice thing to say about that man. He threatened to hit Dorothy Fontana one time. Um, he was a, as true as I ever had to do, write an evil you character. You must be speaking of Gene's attorney, the legendary Leonard Mayschlisch. Uh, oh, yeah, that one. Yeah. 
there were things Maisel wanted and, and Leonard would tell Jean, oh, no, you can't do that. Don't do that. Don't, you can't buy her a new car. You can't do this. You can't. And fortunately, Jean trusted Maisel more than he trusted Leonard. But Le- Leonard appointed himself chief of staff for Star Trek. And for several months, he was telling people, he was writing right. the memos that supposedly came from Jean. And when we finally found proof of it, when we finally found proof of it, we went to the Writers Guild. And I wasn't the only one, uh, although Gene blamed me, but um, we went to the Writers Guild and the Writers Guild told Gene, um, we're going to shut you down unless you get that. The man is breaking Writers Guild rules right and left. We're going to shut you down. And they called Paramount. And within 15 minutes, and I'm not choking with you, 15 minutes of, of calling Paramount, armed guards escorted Leonard Mazeless off the lot. And I know this because I got thank you phone calls. Because by then I had left the show, but I was one of the people who went to the guild that this man was was violating guild. So I finally had the evidence. Dorothy had the evidence. I don't know if Dorothy got thank you calls, but but uh, I called her and said, uh, "Guess what? I just heard." And uh, he was banned from the lot. Yeah, he did eventually yeah. sneak back on, but by then his uh, his influence had been considerably and you know that's i you know on one hand that's a that's the reason you're gone you were gone that's the reason dorothy left that's the reason really the whole eddie milkus left bob justman was and 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 there were people that leonard mazeless hired that gene didn't even know that he had hired people to be producers over dorothy over me because you know there was nobody better qualified to be a producer on that show than dorothy i had some chops on the matter you know having written the production bible i should have been a producer or at least a story editor the best they were willing to give me with leonard mazelish in there was consultant and we ended up the writers guild went to uh paramount and said dorothy is owed this much money for this was work she's done and david is owed this much money for work he's done it was considerable it is much more than gene reported than was reported in gene's biography it is much more than was reported in her solo destiny's book none of them called me you know, I said, if you called me, I would have told you everything. Yeah. And I bawled out Bob Justman and said, if you'd have called me, I'd have told you what you put in your books is inaccurate. Well, thank you. I mean, we started to get a little shy. You know, there, I have this unofficial rule that there's like a 20-year statute of limitations before think people will talk about things or whatever. But Oh, I didn't. I said nothing. I said nothing for, well, let's see. I didn't say anything until about 2005 because other people were finally writing their tell-all books. Yeah, well, the uh, the documentary Chaos on the Bridge that was the one that was the yeah yeah, that was the first olive out of the bottle, and Uh uh, um, (laughs) uh, Bill interview. I love Bill; he's just the best, and we had a great time. And uh, I I got a call from a friend, or no, an email from a friend. He said, "I just sat down and watched Chaos on the Bridge." Everybody else was so careful with what they said. Says you, your comments, you acted like you didn't give a. What boot wasn't the word to use? He said, you acted like you didn't care. I said, you're right. I know. What are they going to do to me? I said, I will tell you this. When I left the show, I, I said, I'm going to concentrate on my novels. And one day, I realized there's something I want to do that I have always wanted to do. And I had never put it on my wish list because I was afraid it was that I could never have it. So I'm going to adopt a little. And I started researching. It took me a year to research. And I worked my way through all the obstacles, all the hurdles. And in September of 1992, you can see my little boy is working in the background. Um, 
they placed this incredible little boy in my house and I became a dad and he became my son. And, um, if I had still been working on Star Trek, I wouldn't have been able to do that. I mean, I had made money. I would have, I would have, have uh, a lot of shows for my credit, but I wouldn't have a family. I've got a son. I got a daughter-in-law. I got two incredible grandchildren. That wouldn't have happened if I hadn't been pushed off Star Trek by Leonard Maisler. I said, okay, I, yeah. I think I, I think I got the better end of that deal. <laughs> you know, well, I, I'm, I, I'm very I go happy. Back and th- yeah. I think just to go, just because we're, this is our document of the week, I, I, I totally hear you. And you can't argue with the way life evolves and, and how wonderful it has. And I've written some of, I've written some of the yeah. best novels in my career. I've written things that could not have been written any other way. The Martian Child, 13, 14, 15 o'clock, um, and, and uh, the Hela, uh, the Jumping Off the Planet trilogy. <laughs> And when I finally put all the pieces together, there'll be more of the War Against the Tour, which is the parts I've been looking at. I say, wow, this is your, pretty good. Your big series. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that wouldn't have happened. Yeah. I just can't help but think, though, if Blood and Fire, and again, even removing, getting away from the whole gay couple that don't do anything except get asked a question. <laughs> but getting back to the point, you were trying to do an AIDS allegory story at a time when that would have been an impact, as well as the whole blood donation angle to it. What a nice natural tie-in, you know, right out of the gate, here's Star Trek being good things in the world again. And the, I hate to say the marketing, but the tie-in you would have had with, with Blood Collection and, and having a stand even in that arena. Because it, if that had happened, there wouldn't have been the chaos on the bridge. And, start, and Next Generation, we, we write off the first season so much now because of the chaos that we know about. It's a miracle if it didn't have the weight of, no, this show will go, keep throwing money at it until the show works or until we work this out. If it had started off in a little bit calmer attitude. It know, was atmosphere. pulling a rating. It was making money. They were selling. Right. Uh, Paramount was selling the commercials. And as long as it was profitable, they didn't care. Um, but they knew the show was in trouble. Um, what happened, I, I found this out later, is that it, I was writing these wonderful memos, the production Bible is we should do this. We should be aware of this. We can fix this. We, and, and my memos, I didn't know my memos were going upstairs to the top execs, the top brass at Paramount. They could come by and have a meeting with Gene once a week, at least, or sometimes more. And I didn't realize what was happening at first, but they would tell Gene, this guy, David Gerald knows is, is an asset. Take good care of him, make him producer, et cetera, et cetera. Every Gene heard that. And, and his lawyer heard that as, we want to replace you with David Cheryl. So every time they would, I, I, I saw this happen. They would go into Gene's office, they'd have a meeting. And then a little bit after that, I'd be called into Gene's office and he'd ball me out for whatever. And I was like, what the hell is going on? I was just doing what, you know, I was trying to stay ahead yeah. of it. And it hurt. I will tell you, and Dorothy Fontana, Dorothy Fontana had the absolute worst experience with Gene jumping her credits, um, which we can talk about that another time. And and one day, Dorothy and I, and we just went out to lunch and looked at each other and said, something's wrong here. This is not the, this is not the show we signed mm-hmm. up for. And it was, very, it, was a very, it was partly Leonard Mayslish and partly the studio had installed Rick Berman to keep an eye on, on um, Gene, and uh, Rick had his own agenda. But let me say this. I love Star Trek. I love the idea of let's go out and explore strange new worlds. Let's, because... You go back to the original series, and every episode had a lesson in it, a moral, a, a thought, something to think about. There mm-hmm. was, it, it had gravitas. It was important. It was an important show to watch. 
and and you you didn't want to miss an episode because even even the weaker episodes were about something mm-hmm. and that's the star trek i want more of that's the star trek i wanted to work on nothing hurt more than not being able to work on that star trek that was the show we wanted to just and Leonard Maisler's that vile man would walk around saying, this is aesthetically displeasing. You can't do this. So he was taking out all the action, all the meaning, all the thought. And it's like, it hurt because you knew what Star Trek could be and you weren't allowed to do it. Well, things, things eventually turned around for you. Things eventually turned around for the series. Yeah. I just, I just know that uh, the saga of blood and fire, that I call it, uh, was caught up in all of that and um, what could have been happened but it gets we talked did it about as a so fan often film. we did it as a fan film right. james Colley's uh, star trek new voyages and i think we got 80 percent of what i intended on screen maybe 90 percent. and it's it's i am very proud that the fans were able to recreate the original star trek with such enthusiasm and commitment and and integrity that it was it was what star it's what the production of star trek should be it was it was a labor of love and i'm grateful to everybody who worked on that that epic yeah well i know that that's how blood and fire eventually found its way to a greater public um but yeah it's 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 not just that's one of those shows that it's not just episodes it's not just about the episode it's about everything that's wrapped up in what's going on there so i just uh want to thank you again for dropping by and uh and giving us a chance to finally hear you know some of it the there's source. a lot more but that's you know that's the tip <laughs> of the, the the berg i'm not sure what if it's ice or something else <laughs> that's the tip of <laughs> no that's the other one no anyway no listen david thanks so much for uh, for coming by and, and sharing some more of this firsthand all right well i'll come back after i uh, get resettled on the east coast and we'll do some more chat uh, chit chat about uh, about the other things that uh, i've been involved I, with it's, it's i love you larry you're a great guy and i love doing work uh, with you david well more of that back at you thank and you. thanks so much all right <laughs> thank you yeah everybody the trek files is produced by roddenberry entertainment now all of our documents and your chance to comment and please do are available at te- facebook.com slash the Trek Files. Now for more deep diving of Star Trek behind the scenes, visit Dr. Trek and Portal 47. Yeah, that's me at LarryNemacek.com. That's where you can also link in for all of our new Trek Files swag and shirts too at our Tee Public shop. Trek well, everybody. This is a Roddenberry podcast. For more great podcasts, visit podcast.roddenberry.com.